0: chapter 24 of martin eden by jack london this LibriVox recording is in the public domain chapter 24 the weeks passed martin ran out of money and publishers' checks were far away as ever all his important manuscripts had come back and been started out again and his hack work fared no better his little kitchen was no longer graced with a variety of foods caught in the pinch with a part-sack of rice, and a few pounds of dried apricots. Rice and apricots was his menu three times a day for five days hand-running. Then he started to realize on his credit. The Portuguese grocer, to whom he had hitherto paid cash, called a halt when Martin's bill reached the magnificent total of three dollars and eighty-five cents. Oh, "'Or you see,' said the grocer, "'you no catch a de work, I lose a demon. mun.' and Martin could reply nothing. There was no way of explaining. It was not true business principle to allow credit to a strong-bodied young fellow of the working class who was too lazy to work. You catch at a job, I let you have more de grub, the grocer assured Martin. No job, no grub. That a business. And then, to show that it was purely business foresight and not prejudice, have de drink on de house good friends just as the same. So Martin drank, in his easy way, to show that he was good friends with the house, and then went supperless to bed. The fruit store where Martin had bought his vegetables was run by an American whose business principles were so weak that he let Martin run a bill of five dollars before stopping his credit. The baker stopped at two dollars and the butcher at four dollars. Martin added his debts, and found that he was possessed of a total credit in all the world of fourteen dollars and eighty-five cents. He was up with his typewriter rent, but he estimated that he could get two months' credit on that, which would be eight dollars. When that occurred, he would have exhausted all possible credit. The last purchase from the fruit store had been a sack of potatoes, and for a week he had potatoes, and nothing but potatoes, three times a day. An occasional dinner at Ruth's helped to keep strength in his body, though he found it tantalizing enough to refuse further helping when his appetite was raging at sight of so much food spread before it. Now and again, though afflicted with secret shame, he dropped in at his sister's at mealtime and ate as much as he dared, more than he dared at the morse table. Day by day he worked on, and day by day the postman delivered to him rejected manuscripts. He had no money for stamps, so the manuscripts accumulated in a heap under the table. Came a day when for forty hours he had not tasted food. He could not hope for a meal at Ruth's, for she was away at San Rafael on a two weeks visit, and for very shame's sake he could not go to his sister's. To cap misfortune, the postman, in his afternoon round, brought him five returned manuscripts. Then it was that Martin wore his overcoat down into Oakland, and came back without it, but with five dollars tinkling in his pocket. He paid a dollar each on account to the four tradesmen, and in his kitchen fried steak and onions, made coffee, and stewed a large pot of prunes. And having dined, he sat down at his table-desk, and completed before midnight an essay which he entitled, The Dignity of Usury. Having typed it out, he flung it under the table, for there had been nothing left from the five dollars with which to buy stamps. Later on he pawned his watch, and later his wheel, reducing the amount available for food by putting stamps on all his manuscripts and sending them out. He was disappointed by his hack-work. Nobody cared to buy. He compared it with what he found in the newspapers, weeklies, and cheap magazines, and decided that his was better far better than the average, yet it would not sell. Then he discovered that most of the newspapers printed a great deal of what was called plate stuff, and he got the address of the association that furnished it. His own work that he sent in was returned, along with a stereotyped slip, informing him that the staff supplied all the copy that was needed. In one of the great juvenile periodicals he noted whole columns of incident and anecdote here was a chance. His paragraphs were returned, and though he tried repeatedly, he never succeeded in placing one. Later on, when it no longer mattered, he learned that the associate editors and sub-editors augmented their weekly salaries by supplying those paragraphs themselves. The comic weeklies returned his jokes and humorous verse, and the light society verse he wrote for the large magazines found no abiding place. Then there was the newspaper storiette. He knew that he could write better ones than were published. Managing to obtain the addresses of two newspaper syndicates, he deluged them with storiettes. When he had written twenty and failed to place one of them, he ceased. And yet from day to day he read storiettes in the dailies and weeklies, scores and scores of storiettes, not one of which would compare with his. In his despondency he concluded that he had no judgment whatever, that he was hypnotized by what he wrote, and that he was a self-deluded pretender. The inhuman editorial machine ran smoothly as ever. He folded the stamps in with his manuscript, dropped it into the letter-box, and from three weeks to a month afterward the postman came up the steps and handed him the manuscript. Surely there were no live, warm editors at the other end. It was all the wheels and cogs and oil cups, a clever mechanism operated by automatons. He reached stages of despair wherein he doubted if editors existed at all. He had never received a sign of the existence of one, and from absence of judgment in rejecting all he wrote, it seemed plausible that editors were myths, manufactured and maintained by office boys, typesetters, and pressmen. The hours he spent with Ruth were the only happy ones he had, and they were not all happy. He was afflicted always with a gnawing restlessness, more tantalizing than in the old days before he possessed her love. For now that he did possess her love, the possession of her was far away as ever. He had asked for two years, time was flying, and he was achieving nothing. Again he was always conscious of the fact that she did not approve what he was doing. She did not say so directly, yet indirectly she let him understand it as clearly and definitely as she could have spoken it. It was not resentment with her, but disapproval, though less sweet-natured women might have resented where she was no more than disappointed. Her disappointment lay in that this man she had taken to mold refused to be molded. To a certain extent she had found his clay plastic then it had developed stubbornness, declining to be shaped in the image of her father or of Mr. Butler. What was great and strong in him she missed, or, worse yet, misunderstood. This man, whose clay was so plastic that he could live in any number of pigeonholes of human existence, she thought willful and most obstinate, because she could not shape him to live in her pigeonhole, which was the only one she knew. She could not follow the flights of his mind. And when his brain got beyond her, she deemed him erratic. Nobody else's brain ever got beyond her. She could always follow her father and mother, her brothers and only. Wherefore, when she could not follow Martin, she believed the fault lay with him. It was the old tragedy of insularity, trying to serve as mentor to the Universal. You worship at the Shrine of the Established, he told her once in a discussion they had over Praps and Vanderwater. I grant that as authorities to quote they are most excellent, the two foremost literary critics in the United States. Every schoolteacher in the land looks up to Vanderwater as the dean of American criticism. Yet I read his stuff, and it seems to me the perfection of the felicitous expression of the inane. Why, he is no more than a ponderous bromide, thanks to Jellit Burgess. And Praps is no better. His hemlock mosses, for instance, is beautifully written, not a comma is out of place, and the tone, ah, is lofty, so lofty. He is the best-paid critic in the United States, though, heaven forbid, he's not a critic at all. They do criticism better in England. But the point is, they sound the popular note, and they sound it so beautifully and morally and contentedly. Their reviews remind me of a British Sunday. They are the popular mouthpieces. They back up your professors of English, and your professors of English back them up, and there isn't an original idea in any of their skulls. They know only the established. In fact, they are the established. They are weak-minded, and the established impresses itself upon them as easily as the name of the brewery is impressed on a beer bottle. And their function is to catch all the young fellows attending the university, to drive out of their minds any glimmering originality that may chance to be there and to put upon them the stamp of the Established. I think I am nearer the truth, she replied, when I stand by the Established than you are, raging around like an iconoclastic South Sea Islander. It was the missionary who did the image-breaking, he laughed, and unfortunately all the missionaries are off among the heathen, so there are none left at home to break those old images, Mr. Vanderwater and Mr. Praps, and the college professors as well, she added. He shook his head emphatically. No, the science professors should live. They're really great. But it would be a good deed to break the heads of nine-tenths of the English professors, little microscopic-minded parrots, which was rather severe on the professors, but which to Ruth was blasphemy. She could not help but measure the professors, neat scholarly, in fitting clothes, speaking in well-modulated voices, breathing of culture and refinement, With this almost indescribable young fellow, whom somehow she loved, whose clothes never would fit him, whose heavy muscles told of damning toil, who grew excited when he talked, substituting abuse for calm statement and passionate utterance for cool self-possession. They at least earned good salaries and were—yes, she compelled herself to face it—were gentlemen. While he could not earn a penny and he was not as they." She did not weigh Martin's words nor judge his argument by them. Her conclusion that his argument was wrong was reached, unconsciously it is true, by a comparison of externals. They, the professors, were right in their literary judgments because they were successes. Martin's literary judgments were wrong because he could not sell his wares. To use his own phrase, they made good and he did not make good. And besides, it did not seem reasonable that he should be right. He who had stood, so short a time before, in that same living room, blushing and awkward, acknowledging his introduction, looking fearfully about him, at the bric-a-brac his swinging shoulders threatened to break, asking how long since Swinburne died, and boastfully announcing that he had read Excelsior and the Psalm of Life. Unwittingly. Ruth herself proved his point, that she worshipped the established. Martin followed the processes of her thoughts, but forbore to go farther. He did not love her for what she thought of praps and Vanderwater and English professors, and he was coming to realize, with increasing conviction, that he possessed brain-areas and stretches of knowledge which she could never comprehend nor know existed. In music she thought him unreasonable, and in the matter of opera not only unreasonable but willfully perverse. How did you like it? she asked him one night, on the way home from the opera. It was a night when he had taken her at the expense of a month's rigid economizing on food. After vainly waiting for him to speak about it, herself still tremulous and stirred by what she had just seen and heard, she had asked the question. I liked the overture, was his answer. It was splendid. Yes, but the opera itself. That was splendid, too. That is, the orchestra was, though I'd have enjoyed it more if those jumping-jacks had kept quiet or gone off the stage. Ruth was aghast. You don't mean Tetralani or Barillo?" she queried. All of them, the whole kid and crew. But they are great artists, she protested. They spoiled the music just the same, with their antics and unrealities. But don't you like Barilla's voice?" Ruth asked. He is next to Caruso, they say. Of course I liked him, and I like Tetralani even better. Her voice is exquisite, or at least I think so. But, but, Ruth stammered, I don't know what you mean, then. You admire their voices, yet you say they spoiled the music. Precisely that. I'd give anything to hear them in concert, and I'd give even a bit more not to hear them when the orchestra is playing. I'm afraid I am a hopeless realist. Great singers are not great actors. To hear Barillo sing a love passage with the voice of an angel, and to hear Tetralani reply like another angel, and to hear it all accompanied by a perfect orgy of glowing and colorful music, is ravishing, most ravishing. I do not admit it. I assert it. But the whole effect is spoiled when I look at them, at Tetralani, five feet ten in her stocking feet and weighing a hundred and ninety pounds and at Barillo, a scant five feet four greasy-featured with the chest of a squat undersized blacksmith and at the pair of them attitudinizing clasping their breasts flinging their arms in the air like demented creatures in an asylum and when i am expected to accept all this as the faithful illusion of a love-scene between a slender and beautiful princess and a handsome romantic young prince why i can't accept it that's all It's rot. It's absurd. It's unreal." That's what's the matter with it. It's not real. Don't tell me that anybody in this world ever made love that way. Why, if I'd made love to you in such fashion, you'd have boxed my ears." But you misunderstand, Ruth protested. Every form of art has its limitations. She was busy recalling a lecture she had heard at the University on the Conventions of the arts. In painting there are only two dimensions to the canvas, yet you accept the illusion of three dimensions, which the art of the painter enables him to throw into the canvas. In writing, again, the author must be omnipotent. You accept as perfectly legitimate the author's account of the secret thoughts of the heroine, and yet at the same time you know that the heroine was alone when thinking these thoughts, and that neither the author nor anyone else was capable of hearing them. And so with the stage, with sculpture, with opera, with every form of art, certain irreconcilable things must be accepted." Yes, I understand that, Martin answered. All the arts have their conventions. Ruth was surprised at his use of the word. It was as if he had studied at the university himself, instead of being ill-equipped, from browsing at haphazard through the books in the library. But even the conventions must be real. Trees painted on flat cardboard and stuck up on each side of the stage, we accept as a forest. It is a real enough convention. But, on the other hand, we would not accept a sea scene as a forest. We can't do it. It violates our senses. Nor would you, or rather should you, accept the ravings and writhings and agonized contortions of those two lunatics tonight as a convincing portrayal of love. But you don't hold yourself superior to all the judges of music, she protested. No, no, not for a moment. I merely maintain my right as an individual. I have just been telling you what I think, in order to explain why the elephantine gambols of Madame Tetralini spoil the orchestra for me. The world's judges of music may all be right, but I am I, and I won't subordinate my taste to the unanimous judgment of mankind. If I don't like a thing, I don't like it, that's all. And there is no reason under the sun why I should ape a liking for it, just because the majority of my fellow creatures like it, or make believe they like it. I can't follow the fashion in things I like or dislike. But music, you know, is a matter of training, Ruth argued, and opera is even more a matter of training. May it not be that I am not trained in opera, he dashed in. She nodded. The very thing, he agreed, and I consider I am fortunate in not having been caught when I was young. If I had, I could have wept sentimental tears tonight, and the clownish antics of that precious pair would have but enhanced the beauty of their voices and the beauty of the accompanying orchestra. You are right. It's mostly a matter of training, and I am too old now. I must have the real thing or nothing. An illusion that won't convince me is a palpable lie, and that's what grand opera is to me when little Barillo throws a fit, clutches mighty Tetralini in his arms also in a fit, and tells her how passionately he adores her. Again Ruth measured his thoughts by comparison of externals, and in accordance with her belief in the established. Who was he, that he should be right and all the cultured world wrong? His words and thoughts made no impression upon her. She was too firmly entrenched in the established to have any sympathy with revolutionary ideas. She had always been used to music and she had enjoyed opera ever since she was a child and all her world had enjoyed it too then by what right did martin eden emerge as he had so recently emerged with his ragtime and working-class songs and pass judgment on the world's music she was vexed with him and as she walked beside him she had a vague feeling of outrage at the best in her most charitable frame of mind she considered the statement of his views to be a caprice an erratic and uncalled-for prank. But when he took her in his arms at the door, and kissed her good-night in tender-lover fashion, she forgot everything in the outrush of her own love to him. And later, on a sleepless pillow, she puzzled, as she had often puzzled of late, as to how it was that she loved so strange a man, and loved him despite the disapproval of her people. And next day, Martin Eden cast hack-work aside, and at white heat hammered out an essay, to which he gave the title, The Philosophy of Illusion. A stamp started it on its travels, but it was destined to receive many stamps, and to be started on many travels in the months that followed. End of chapter Twenty Four.